I think the two main bricks, or I should say three, are ownership, governance, and culture. The first one I would say is ownership. They collide with existent systems. They question them. They choose a different path. And that path can sometimes take years. As you know, there's no quick fix. The second is governance. So again, they collide with traditional top-down hierarchical governance and decision-making structures. They realize that they want it to be more participatory and inclusive. And then I would think the third is culture. I would say that a really core place that I would suggest founders play around the culture piece is specifically around money, finances, and budget, because there's a lot of both potential and emotion that is caught up in that space, in the financial space. This is Simone Cicero, the host of the Bandless Conversations podcast, an ongoing exploration on the future of platforms and ecosystems. These conversations help us make sense of what's coming next with platform business models, the dynamics of marketplaces, business ecosystems, and much more. Join me, my regular co-host Sina Heikila, and other guests as we explore new perspectives about how we organize a scale in a rapidly changing world. Hello. So, as always, uh, let us uh, give you this uh, quick introduction on the episode we have today with uh, Mara Zepeda. Sina, do you want to say a word about her, maybe? Yeah, so we had this conversation with Mara Zapeda, who is co-founder and managing director of a cooperative and a community called Zebras Unite. And this is a very international movement that includes founders, investors, allies and ecosystem builders from different countries. They have actually 25 chapters over six continents, so quite impressive. And uh, Mara is also an entrepreneur herself before uh, starting Zebras Unite, she uh, founded a venture-backed software company called Switchboard, which is now called Hirken. And she has been a systempreneur and a serial social entrepreneur throughout her life. So she has a lot of experience. And I think what we really tried to zoom in on in this conversation was this, what does this movement mean? What are the, the sort of new things that they are trying to, to build? They essentially want to create a new type of economy based on different principles from mainly the contrasting that with the venture-backed startup scene. Uh, so we, we, st- we took the starting point of the manifesto that uh, they, have, they wrote at the start of the Zebras Unite movement called Zebras Fixed What Unicorns Break. And this really framed those various uh, considerations around which kind of founders do you have in the movement, what are their values, what are their ways of working, and what is different essentially from those venture-backed startups. In, getting into questions like scale versus moving a bit slower, more participatory. Is that the case? And also looking into what, how do you define success? How do we define uh, ambition in those types of zebra companies? Right. And I, and I think this is one of the key issues that we discussed on the, on the podcast a little bit. So this kind of coexistence of the typical ambition that uh, entrepreneurs have and maybe startup entrepreneurs have versus uh, the, the completely different mindset that uh, Zebra's founders have. And uh, um, the, essentially, this, this kind of mindset uh, uh, entails uh, certain changes on how you run your company, how you create and build the company, uh, mainly uh, along three lines that uh, Mara explains um, during the conversation. Uh, one is the ownership uh, uh, element, Uh, So most of these companies uh, are always considering ways to uh, distribute ownership to employees or even to the community that creates value 
around the company. For example, we speak about Exit2 community during the, uh, the podcast, and I suggest listeners to go uh, listen to uh, the conversation we had with Nathan Schneider, uh, maybe before this podcast or, or, or at the end of this podcast, because it really connects well uh, with these. Uh, then governance uh, and all the, the discussion around uh, self-management uh, and uh, uh, autonomy and all the elements that are essential, apparently, uh, for a Zebra organization to really to really work. And again, I suggest our listeners to catch maybe with uh, the conversation we had with Aaron Dignan uh, from The Ready, again, on this podcast a few months ago. And then culture. So it's really important that... Uh, just to underline that these companies have a completely different culture. No, they're not really governed by this idea of uh, growth at all cost and hustling. Uh, that is sometimes typical of uh, the, the typical uh, unicorn or, or wannabe unicorn. So it, overall, it's a great episode, uh, really uh, tangible explanation of this Zebras movement that everybody has been hearing about in the last few years. Uh, so you will get some pointers to cultural tenets and maybe some important readings that are suggested uh, by these entrepreneurs that, as Tina said, uh, recognize themselves as well into systems thinking. So not people that just think about products and solutions and problems of one single customer, but look at the uh, development of an organization as something that uh, uh, deals more with the entire system uh, the organization is embedded in. So overall, great, great chat. Uh, enjoy the episode and catch up uh, later. Okay, so let's uh, start. Welcome back, everybody, uh, to the Boundaryless Conversations uh, podcast. Uh, today, I'm here with my usual co-host, uh, Stina Heikila. Hello, everybody. And uh, with Mara Zepeda. Uh, hello, Mara. Hello, so happy to be here. Thank you so much for your time. We're really looking forward to expose your ideas and uh, your actual uh, work uh, to our listeners so, so that they can get some serious inspiration. So first of all, Mara, I think it would be beneficial for our uh, listeners to understand a bit more of the movement that you kind of uh, contributed uh, creating and kickstarting and uh, growing uh, this movement that we call the Zebras movement, right? And uh, the idea of the Zebra was created in a way to be antagonistic or alternative, I would say, more, more specifically to the unicorn idea no? that everybody was uh, thinking about and talking about when it comes to ventures. And, and, and so what does it mean to build a Zebra? What, does it, what is this movement about uh, uh, really? Sure. Well, let's see. The movement, I guess, begins with the four founders, as most things do. The four of us, Jen Brandel, Ania Williams, Astrid Schultz, and I are four founders who, back in 2017, we were each starting our own companies. And we had a lot of dreams and visions for what business and entrepreneurship could be in these companies. And in the process of building our company, um, I guess... The way that you can, I can liken it to is, you know, sometimes I, I think about gardeners or people that work on houses and you begin to think that you're going to grow tomatoes. And then as you start to grow tomatoes, you realize that you need to grow complementary crops. You realize you need a greenhouse. You realize you need to understand composting. And so in the process of starting a business, we are all systems thinkers. And it became clear that we were existing inside of an ecology of a lot of different other systems at play, such as access to capital, the constraints of corporate forms, the our communities that we were living in, our families. And so 
that caused us to begin to write about what we were noticing. So in 2017, we wrote a manifesto called Zebras Fix What Unicorns Break. And what that manifesto was, was really an observation of the startup ecosystem that we were seeing at the time, which was the dominant status quo of Silicon Valley, exponential growth, growth at all costs, monopolies, making investors, a small number of investors very wealthy versus the companies that we were both building and that our friends were building and that we saw a lot of other founders building where that wasn't the incentives and that wasn't the end game. And they didn't identify as social entrepreneurs per se. So the social entrepreneurship category wasn't really catching these people. These were people that had an innate ethical and moral compass that had uh, an innate orientation towards community and mutualism. And so we talk about these types of founders, you know, just kind of as a certain type of person that is motivated by different things. When we published the manifesto, we put a survey at the end of it that said, if you resonate with these ideas of mutualism, cooperation, sustainability, regeneration, community investment, cooperative ownership, reimagining what might be possible for the future of business, that reimagining business is more as a human rights issue. It's one of the most important human rights issues of our time. Then we would love to hear from you. And we heard from tens of thousands of people around the world. So what followed was a very organic grassroots movement. Later that year, we all met in Portland, Oregon for a conference called DazzleCon. A group of zebras is called a Dazzle. And we asked the community, what should this organization be? And they had a number of ideas and dreams and design requirements for how we could um, do things differently. And so what ensued was a sort of a two-year odyssey through all different types of legal structures and financing to arrive at the corporate structure that we have now, which is a pretty unique hybrid structure, um, which we can talk about a bit later. But the movement, it was very much, um, it feels sort of like a lotus that just keeps opening and opening and opening. Um, We now have over 25 chapters around the world. So it's an international movement, and we have a distributed team of 15 worker owners in the movement that are both owners of the cooperative and are contributors to it. The co-op was started with about 20 founding member companies that really believed in the vision of Zebras Unite, and they gave their time and talent to building the movement. Yeah, thank you for the, the introduction. I, I was interested when you said, quite making a little bit this distinction that it's it's not necessarily social entrepreneurship as maybe it has been conceived and, and we think about it normally, but it's really looking at the type of person who is founding uh, that person's values and Uh, ethical stance, let's say, and you mentioned business as a human rights issue. So I'd be curious to double click a bit on that, if if you can explain more what that means and and how you sort of arrived at that. Yeah, well, I think it's twofold. I mean, the first is business is a vector for social change because it touches so many parts of our systems. Businesses are created inside communities. Those businesses pay taxes. Those taxes fund our schools businesses create demand for infrastructure, businesses employ people, those people pay for real estate, they send their children to school. So business is in many ways this kind of, for better or worse, a driving economic factor that as a result of the engine of capitalism, when where we are now in late stage capitalism, it drives a lot of different consequences. And it's an engine that where a lot of issues sort of surround it. The why we say it's a human rights issue is because the way that any business does business will create different consequences in the world. 
So, you know, right now we're recording on the company called Zencaster. We can ask a lot of questions of Zencaster to understand what their worldview is. You know, how are they funded? What is their corporate form? What is their policy towards maternity leave and family leave and paternity leave? Do they have a four-day work week? Are they remote? Where are they based? What are the values of their founders? And so inside of something like Zencaster is actually a number of micro decisions that make the world. It's what creates the world. So if we think about this and reverse engineer it, then what we're here to do is to enable people that have beautiful, responsible, compassionate visions of the world and help them to create the enterprises that support them, their families, and their communities. So if you start from the place of what is the type of founder that we wish to support and what is their vision of the world, then in that sense, every business is a social impact business because every business offers offers the opportunity for infinite choices that are better for our communities, our bodies, our environment, ourselves, our planet. So that's what we mean when we say business is a human rights issue. And then when you when you now compound that by just the astonishing reality that billionaires doubled their wealth during the pandemic, what you get is a real clarion call that we have to be thinking about business in a different way. So, so I have a, a quick question that I hope is, doesn't sound too much of a provocation, let's say. <laughs> so um, we, we used, you know, in, in kind of uh, this distinction that happens uh, uh, sometimes online between woke ideas and based ideas, right? I don't know if you're familiar with that, I guess, right? Um, woke and the other one? Based. Based, B-A-S-E-D? Yes, Okay. Uh-huh. You know, we have this idea of doing good, right? That uh, too often gets uh, uh, watered down, you know, in, in, in just, uh, you know, we are familiar with greenwashing and we're familiar with uh, any type of washing, let's say, pick one. And on the other hand, uh, when you speak about community, for example, right, and your, our families and whatever, uh, there is a certain uh, aspect of embodiment, right, that uh, a business needs to um, integrate, right? And this comes uh, with, uh, I would say, uh, sacrifice. I, I don't know how to say in English, but some, so, something has to give, right? When, when, you, uh, when you really want to make an impact, when you really want to make a, a business that has a direct relationship with the world that is making, right? Uh, that you, you were thinking about this idea of world making. So, so my, my question would be, Uh, are zebras more embodied as organizations? Are they more, uh, maybe more local, uh, more distributed, more less ambitious in terms of, uh, you know, having, for example, global businesses? What, what, are the, what are the traits that you see emerging from zebras that really want to embody what they preach, essentially? Uh, that's maybe the, the point that I, w- I wanted to, to ask you about. What are the changes in the organizational structure, in the type of businesses, in the, in the way that these companies really interact with their, I don't know, their communities, their landscapes, and, and, and so on? First of all, I can't speak for all zebras, right? So that's just what I'm noticing. And second of all, um, I wouldn't say that we're less ambitious. I think if the measure is capitalism and growth at all costs and like exponential profits that benefit the few, that isn't our ambition. But I would say that we are wildly ambitious to imagine a different future and different world for our, our children and future generations that does not use those metrics as the metrics of success around ambition. So 
I think that capitalism has kind of a nihilistic quality because it has to keep self-perpetuating. And we imagine systems that are ambitious and that it's okay if they die, it's okay if they evolve, it's okay if they get absorbed, it's okay if they merge, you know? So I think the first question inside of your question is what is the definition of ambition? And I would say that there's a a very broad spectrum and and people are are desperately ambitious to imagine a different future as we wake up to what we are living in right now. Um, In terms of the values, you know, our values are truthful, mutualistic, emergent, and fierce. And so those are the qualities that we oftentimes see in zebras. And I think the one value that I find I contemplate every day is this notion of mutualism. Mutualism is this notion that we need each other and that it's not about going further together. It's not about being greater than the sum of our parts, but there's actually something quite spiritually significant inherent in that idea of realizing that we are Um, interdependent, you know? So if we approach the world from a place of interdependence and recognize that competition isn't what our ambition is, and instead what we're trying to do is cooperate as, as much as we can, as deeply as we can, as authentically as we can, that opens up spiritual traditions, wisdom traditions, ecological principles. And so then what you start to get is many different metaphors around how we around coexistence, you know? Um, so the upside is that it's a pleasurable, generative, nurturing, kind place to be. And we've seen zebra founders have extraordinary attunement and sensitivity to, um, their communities, their employees, the, a sense of fairness. And then there are complexities and challenges inside of cooperation because it involves an entire skill set that many of us don't have, or we'd have to de-pattern from traditional corporate settings. Um, I'm sure Aaron talked a lot about this in in your interview with him. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's the challenge, right? There's a challenge always inherent in all opportunities. And so the opportunity is we can absolutely imagine a better way. And I think many of us are motivated by that sense of service and transcendence and connection and recognizing that there's a, a unity to humanity. And then the the challenge inside of that is inherent in that we have to figure out then how to negotiate making decisions, being in relationship, having conversations, making tough choices. You know, we, we just have to keep deciding together. And that that is an entire skill set that very few of us have toolboxes equipped to <laughs> to address. Right. So that's kind of the fun part of it is that we all get to learn together and how to how to do it. Yeah, I, I had a quick reflection and then I will uh, also hand it over to Stina because uh, I know she has something to, to add. But what, what does it entail in terms of leadership, right? In terms of kind of style of management, for example, right? So in terms of... Uh, you are used to the big impact that founders, for example, have on companies. Uh, so in general, I, I'm wondering, what do you see in terms of uh, approaches to leadership in terms of, uh, you know, I know you speak uh, often about the need to detach from this idea of the hustling entrepreneur and uh, pushing forward the whole of the organization. So what what, what are you seeing in terms of uh, for example, uh, what does it entail uh, in terms of management, right? In terms of uh, leadership styles? Gosh. Um, I mean, first of all, I would even question if what we need is to be managed or to be led. 
So I don't, I don't know if that's true, which is, I don't even know if those words apply anymore. I mean, I guess I can speak a little bit to some of my own experience and what I see is it's a practically bottomless experience of empathy and being able to adopt another person's perspective and point of view in order to have difficult conversations. I think that is made so difficult by Zoom, frankly. There are times that I am really starting to question how Zoom is interfering with our ability to read people um, because so much is communicated in nonverbal signals and body language. And we basically just have like the neck up as a tool in Zoom. Right. So I have a lot of questions about that. But I mean, in terms of leadership, some people that come to mind that have been really key to me are people like Margaret Wheatley, Nora Bateson, Ari Weinzweig, um, Father Arismendi Ariata, Amanda Ripley's book called High Conflict, which discusses situations where people have managed to get out of high conflict situations. Um, Because at the end of the day, mutualism is stymied by an inability to move through inevitable conflicts. That's, you know, you're working together, you're working together, everything's great. And then somebody drops the ball, somebody lets you down, somebody hurts your feelings, you know, you misinterpret a memo. And so it's actually in the exceptions to cooperation where I think we find the greatest opportunity to explore what leadership means in this time somebody's kid gets sick. Somebody has to take care of their grandmother, right? (laughs) And so then the question becomes, well, are we leaders in those moments? How do we create compassionate spaces for authentic sharing and ways that that those experiences can become part of of people's lives in a way that they feel that they can share, share vulnerably, they won't be punished for, and that we can learn from, that we can all support one another and learn from. It's interesting. You mentioned a bit about uh, technology, and that was actually another question uh, that we have. But I wanted first to hear your thoughts on a little bit um, the picture that you paint, you know, like about this deep empathy and the skill sets and or I would think intuitively the time that that takes compared to a world that is moving always in a very fast speed and sort of you have a feeling of constant acceleration. And then we have, on on the other hand, we also have very pressing challenges that we know that we have to face as humanity, like uh, uh, climate emergency, other social inequality issues. Uh, so there's a, there's a sort of notion that you want to speed up and slow down at the same time. And I'm sure that that's something that you have come across a lot. So it would be interesting to hear, you know, does this take too much time if we want to build organizations like that? Do we have that time and can it, should it accelerate? Can it accelerate? And so many questions in one essentially, but I think you know what I'm (laughs) trying to get at. Yeah, no, it's a great question. I think about it a lot and I'm sure you all get those questions a lot around platform co-ops and cooperatives in general. I mean, I think one thing I can say that we do really well at Zebras um, that I I give credit to Sassy, uh, Kate Sassoon, who's our director of membership and one of our founding members and Astrid Schultz, uh, one of our co-founders, and she's a Shah who directs operations, is that I guess I would say two things around this notion of it's going to take more time. The first is many things can take less time if you develop a process for them. So I think where chaos starts to unfold is 
if there's not a process. And so cooperatives actually offer this huge body of past work and history that we can draw on around the notion of making a proposal, right? So if somebody is not happy inside of a cooperative, the process to bring that forward is to discuss it and make a proposal. As an example, at Zebras, we were finding that if we were meeting on Thursdays and we were meeting for an hour and we found that that meeting for our team was too late in the week. So we had low energy and it was also um, too short because we are an international distributed team across all sorts of time zones that it was really our only time to get together and co-work as a group. So SASE made a proposal, which was let's have the meeting earlier and let's have it for an hour and a half, right? And then we discussed that proposal and then we implemented it and then we tried it. And so cooperatives actually have, and then, you know, the beautiful thing about it is we, the second thing I would say is you also have a bunch of tools that are available now. We use Asana and Notion, like our life depends on it. Um, So anytime we we have a process, we will put it into an Asana task as a template so that we don't have to reinvent the wheel every single time we're doing these these tasks. And then that template can become updated. We can document our rationale inside of Notion. Um, So I think that there's technology, the technology tools that are available right now are actually like fairly adequate for doing collective decision-making processes. So long as once you have that process, we have what's called a decision log, which logs our decisions and rationales around kind of big issue conversations. We have Asana that memorializes essentially the steps within tasks. And Asana is a profoundly um, flexible tool that I encourage people to check out. It's, it's really quite potent <laughs> in terms of what it can do. Um, And then we have iterative processes where if those processes aren't working, people are empowered to bring forward a proposal. So there's a lot of great work out there about proposals and cooperatives. Another great resource I'd suggest is um, Ari Wines. We wrote something called Bottom Line Change, and there's a training that Zingerman's does around it, which is essentially creating a culture where employees slash employee owners feel empowered to write a different vision for what could be, put that forward as a proposal, and then go through um, a, a discussion and decision-making process in order to, to reach consensus and move forward. I, I'm curious to, to explore a bit uh, two aspects uh, now. It's, uh, you know, essentially, first of all, the how. The how. So you spoke about something, like, you know, you spoke about some, something like, for example, collaborative decision-making. But I would like to explore all the bricks, let's say, that make a zebra. And then I would like to jump into a little bit more the what. So what are these companies doing? What business models? Uh, what kind of products and services and so on? So first of all, let's start with the, with the, with the how. So you spoke about, uh, as I said, taking decisions uh, collectively, for example. But what are the bricks that uh, make a zebra? So I, I can think of... Uh, what kind of corporate structures do you use? Uh, you know, for example, the, the, the exit to community idea, sociocracy, uh, decentralized self-management. So can you maybe name a few of these traits, let's say, of these uh, key uh, elements that uh, you see coming up again and again in zebras? Like, uh, for example, many zebras use self-management or many zebras use a certain approach to taking decisions. Yeah, it's a great question. So I think the two main bricks, or I should say three, are ownership, governance, and culture. 
So when we talk about ownership, these are founders who may have, they may have had a venture funded startup as I did, and they recognize that there's a different way. They may recognize that traditional venture style capital will dilute their mission and their vision. And so they're looking for alternative capital. So the the ownership piece really is the founders collide with the real limitations of our existing status quo when it comes to corporate um, structures like C-Corps or S-Corps or LLCs or nonprofits. And they kind of have this like, what the what the hell is this <laughs> enlightenment moment where they realize, um, okay, I'm going to need to find a different corporate structure. I'm going to need to find something that's, I'm going to need to create a hybrid. I'm going to pursue something like steward ownership, what purpose is doing. Um, so they collide first I would say, with the limitations of existent corporate structures, then what makes a zebra is that person questions, interrogates, they ask themselves whether that structure will align with their values and their end goal, and then they seek out alternatives. So they might enroll in start.coops accelerator for cooperatives, and they're pursuing a different path there. They might decide that they're trying to exit to community, which means to figure out ways that the end users or employees um, or people that created value receive ownership. And so they might do something like, like I would argue that Brian Chesky from Airbnb, when Airbnb went public and they set aside, can't remember if it was five or 10% of shares for Airbnb hosts, that was a bit of a zebra nod, right? To say there are people, the, the people that created the value on this platform deserve to share ownership. So I would call Brian zebra curious, <laughs> even though he has a venture backed company. So the first one I would say Fantastic. is ownership. They collide with existent systems. They question them. They choose a different path. And that path can sometimes take years. As you know, there's no quick fix. Um, the second is governance. So again, they collide with traditional top-down hierarchical Uh, governance and decision-making structures. They realize that they want it to be more participatory and inclusive. They discover things like Frederick Laloux's reinventing organizations or, you know, what the folks at the ready are doing, alternative models, um, resources like communityrule.info that Nathan has. And they begin to awaken to the fact that human beings can make decisions in different configurations. And it doesn't have to be this top-down managerial hierarchical style. So then they begin exploring alternatives. They may find sociocracy, circles. They may create a charter for themselves about how they do decision-making. But I think the second stop along the way of the zebra journey, um, and this is definitely not linear, is that they begin to question decision-making norms inside of corporate culture, and they choose different models, and they figure out ways to make that conversation participatory with their stakeholders. Um, And then I would think the third is culture. So again, getting back to a lot of what we've already talked about, they instill different practices. Um, so for example, at Zebras, I can speak to our practices. Um, we have something called the Zebra Solidarity Fund, where 2.5% of all of our top line profits goes into a fund to help members that might not be able to afford co-op membership and to support other member-driven projects. That was informed by um, an Islamic finance principle called Zakat, which was brought to us by our director of operations, Shiza Shah, who writes quite a bit about the practices of Islamic finance as a core teaching that may be useful to zebra companies. Um, we have a fund called the Joy and Belonging Fund, where uh, worker owners can choose to spend that in ways that cultivate feelings of joy and belonging. A lot of it comes down to, I would say, the budget really represents your values. Um, we have a relatively transparent system around 
doing participatory budgeting as Zebras Unite. So everybody owns and understands their budget. And that takes a long time. There's a whole raft of issues associated with money trauma and family of origin stories and stories about self-worth. So I would say that a really core place that I would suggest founders play around the culture piece is specifically around money, finances, and budget, because there's a lot of both potential and emotion that is caught up in that, um, in that space, in the financial space. Um, and you need to make money, you know, people have to make money in order to make their salaries. And so it gets, it, it really unpacks a lot of the issues that we're talking about. It's like a very concrete place to have conversations about value and worth. Um, so those are just a few examples of like the blocks of zebra-ness of what we see is bringing founders together um, and then adjacent to that, you know, we have a lot of students that are involved in the zebra movement that are really tired of this traditional status quo MBAs. They're looking for alternative resources. We have a number of investors who are part of the community that are looking for deal flow and ways of investing that are different than the status quo. So um, people come to us from many different places. And then as in our international chapters, you have our chapter leads that are really creating culture change on the ground. Places like Japan, where, you know, they just raised a million dollars to support zebras in Japan. And their real focus is like, how do we create more companies that are over 100 years old? Japan has the highest concentration of those types of companies. Mm -hmm. In Berlin, it looks more like the new Mittelstand movement, which is very much about family-owned enterprise. In Amman, Jordan, that's really about how to keep the bay at bay and reimagine um, investments that are equitable where women are involved in the investment landscape in Jordan. Uh, so the, the chapters really have a phenomenally diverse um, vision of what culture change can be on the ground for their cities. Yeah, I have a quick follow up. I hope Sina will will allow me to do so, and then I, uh, sorry about that. But um, you know, I, I, I'm listening to you, and I feel a lot of what you said uh, points out to a different model of growing the company, right? Something you know, when I think, for example, in the need of having collective decisions make decision making, and for example, my experience with sociocracy is a slow process. When you speak about culture, you know, the, the need to create culture, again, it's something that it costs you lots of time, you know, because, uh, uh, because it takes time to do so. So I'm thinking of what is the role of uh, slowness in these kind of companies? So because if, if I listen to you, I, I kind of listen to an approach to entrepreneurship that demands much more participation in, of course, also in responsibility and accountability, like... So, so it takes more people to be entrepreneurial, to build a zebra than it normally takes, right? Maybe normally you have, the, you know, you have a smaller set of entrepreneurial people that can kind of manage and instruct everybody else to execute on their ideas and vision. And this is how normally venture-baked or uh, hyperscaling growth companies grow so fast, you know, because they just execute on a plan that some of the leadership uh, teams uh, have identified and 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 uh, of course there is a lot of uh, uh, smartness even in teams in in large companies but in large uh, traditional startups but i mean a lot of the vision is coming from the center right so if i if i hear you talking about zebras you talk about collective decision making collective ownership uh building culture 
it points me to something that is much is growing much more different, right? It's, it's growing in a in a in a way that uh, you know it needs more in, engagement, it needs more embodiment, it needs more participation. So, what does it entail, and what is the result of such a different approach to growth? Because you said you are ambitious, right? And this is an important point because we have been used about talking about platform cops for ages now, and uh, mm-hmm. the reality is they didn't really make any big impact on the space, right? Because uh, at the moment, they're still very small uh, respect to the traditional companies that dominate the space. How do you reconcile this need to be small and slow uh, and include everybody and and make everybody accountable or responsible of building venture and building uh, value versus uh, this idea of being ambitious and like, you know, represent an alternative to traditional traditional models. Sorry, are you saying that you do believe that it has to be slow or do you believe that that's kind of like a bias that we've inherited? No, no, it's not a bias. It's, I think, uh, an inherent um, effect of, uh, you know, you know, when you speak about decision making, for example, right? Let's make a tra- uh, tangible example, uh, sociocracy. Uh, sociocracy versus autocracy, for sure, you know, sociocracy is much slower uh, than an autocratic decision-making process, right? Uh, and uh, uh, and also, if you need to build culture, uh, right, uh, you cannot, for example, onboard 100 uh, people uh, uh, and expect that they have the culture one week after, right? You, you need a much more careful process of mm-hmm. onboarding the people and, and, you know, being sure that the culture is solid and everybody understands the place they're working in and so on. So inherently for me, uh, building these kind of companies, it entails that the process is lower, possibly that the business models are much more embedded, are much more, uh, you know, it may be a, a, a network of nodes versus a huge centralized power unit, right? Power structure. So uh, how do you reconcile the inherent care and, and, and attention you need to build uh, a company where everybody's accountable, everybody's participa- is participating, everybody can, can really lead in, in herself into having an impact with uh, this ambition uh, to grow? I, I mean, it's a bit also reconnecting with the idea of... Uh, be humble, right? A company like that sounds much, much more humble than the traditional venture-baked hyperscaler. Sure. Yeah. No, that's that's helpful. Well, I mean, I guess I would say I actually think to, as a bit of a provocation, I wonder if the movement is somehow undercutting itself by telling itself the story that deliberative processes are slow. Um, and I just say this as somebody, I say this as really as somebody who's relatively new to co-ops. This is my, I have a year under my belt of um, acting as the managing director of a co-op. So I refer people to Sassy, um, her website, sassycooperates.org. She has just a wealth of information. Um, but what I would say is this, I think we need to tell ourselves different stories about cooperative decision-making. And what we've learned at Zebras is Let's take, for example, a process that every organization has to do each year, the objectives and key results, right, our OKRs. So our OKR process started with uh, one of our founding members and co-op members, Armillaria, doing a three-hour sprint where all of us put all of our ideas for what our objectives and key results should be. Then we spent, you know, the first hour brainstorming, the second hour we started to group them thematically. The third hour, we then began to align on which are the ones we want. 
They sent us all asynchronously the reorganization of what they saw the common themes were. They asked us to either um, agree or to dissent. And if we had a different opinion, to explain why. We had one round of revisions and then we ratified our OKRs. And then we took those OKRs and we each of them, we each then assumed responsibility for ones to make sure there was coverage for each OKR. And then we spent a week writing a personal work plan for how we were going to address those OKRs. Then we put those personal work plans, we ratified those. Then we built out our budget. What's the amount of money that we need in order to execute this plan? Each of us made our own budgets. So we figured out what each of our circles were kind of sociocratically run, what we needed. And then we did a budget roll up and then we ratified the budget. And now we have quarterly goals. So, I mean, I think this notion of it being slow or protracted and difficult, I think sometimes is a bit of a crutch because there are a lot of existent processes, templates, frameworks, facilitated experiences that can get people to decide in a a finite amount of time. And so long as you tell people the budget process is going to take all of Q4, it's going to involve these 10 steps and we're going to end up here by February 15th, then you're giving people a roadmap for what that's going to look like. So you know, um, Sassy often talks about this great essay called The Tyranny of the Structureless. And I think we have to top, stop telling ourselves the story that participatory cooperative decision-making requires structurelessness. I would argue that it's the opposite. It actually requires a tremendous amount of architecture, structure, thought, communication, and um, container-making in order to have an, an organization be effective. Now, whether people are willing to rise to the occasion of iterating on these processes, learning these tools, adopting them inside of their cultures, and recognizing that by overly communicating, you are avoiding traumatizing people (laughs) is another thing, right? But um, I think there's some incredibly toxic leadership practices inside of cooperatives. Cooperatives are not immune, where the belief is sort of that you can have this like willy-nilly fancy free structurelessness. And if anything, it's the structure and the container and the habits of collaboration and communication that make this at all possible. Um, So again, I'm just speaking from our own experience at Zebras Unite, which has involved an extraordinary amount of infrastructure and architecture and, and really deep work around collaboration and communication and the traumas that we carry from our past professional work. It's, it's ongoing. It's constant. Every week is a completely new challenge. But I think that we have to rise to the occasion of recognizing that a certain amount of structure, communication, and discipline is what will make any of this other world that we all think about possible. Yeah, yeah. Let me maybe draw, draw some lines for, for our listeners as well. So, so my impression is in this transition between you know this idea of move fast and break things into something that sounds more like move slow and heal things. You know, my my impression is that something has to give, right? And what has to give is probably our idea of you know what kind of impacts we can have on the market. And so that's why I was having this kind of uh, question for you, like how do you reconcile your ambition? Uh, with this idea that you really want to represent a new or want to promote a new paradigm, right? What, what, do you, what can you leave there, right, in, in exchange of moving away from this idea of moving fast and breaking things? So that, that was the original, the original question coming up. And I understand from your, from your words that it may take some architectural communication work that uh, can serve, let's say, to bridge 
some of these processes that are inherently uh, more careful and need more more care, need more slowness, and uh, make them faster through architecting, right? Through architecting communication and and you know working more at the structural scaffolding uh, level. These are just, I would say, at the moment, just. Uh, 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 quick ideas, but uh, but I think this kind of resonates with what you were you were saying. I don't know if you if you if you want to add something on top of that. Otherwise, I will hand it over to Stina. Yeah, I guess I would just say briefly. Like I think anything is possible with trust, right? And you can move fast if you have trust. So I, I think once I thought like move fast and break things or move slow and make things. I think there was a sticker with a little sloth on it. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think differently now. Like my, my mind has been changed a little bit about that because I don't know that slow, we bias towards another extreme when we say slow, right? Um, I think it needs to move at the right pace. I think that pace is dictated by trust, people's capacity, their ability to rest, whether they have childcare. Frankly, I talk about this in other podcasts, like our team is all women and women have different energetic cycles based on their menstrual cycle. And so there are weeks when members of our team will get done in a week what would take another person three months. And so their seasons of productivity are really different. And that in and of itself is something that's worth studying. So is it that they're slow? Is it that it in those months, in the other weeks, no, it's that the quality of what they're doing for that particular week is so exceptionally different and productive and quantum. Um, so I'm interested in moving in quantum ways where the energy that's expended is moving things forward in really powerful bursts, perhaps, and then you rest. And so I think that like a seasonal approach to energy management is something that's really intriguing to me where you are doing things at at different seasons and you're doing things according to how your body feels best at different seasons. Um, For me, between January and March is practically when I've created, built, thought of, executed, and made happen anything in my life. Like you look back at everything I've created, it was in those three months. And so that is a signal to me that I need to take those months really seriously. And then by the time I get to the summer, I need to ask people for help, but lo and behold, there's somebody for whom summer is is like a high quantum season for them. Right. Right. And so then I can be a support for them. So I, I, um, I really appreciate the questions that you're asking and where you're coming from. And I think what you're asking is gets at like this whole, this whole line of thinking around people as seasonal animals and the notion of quantum rather than slow and a real attunement and sensitivity to what each person's energetic gifts and capacity are at any given time and a recognition that it's always going to be changing, you know, and our life circumstances are constantly fluid. And so in this moment, I guess, to your question about leadership, we have to recognize that the only constant is change to some degree But then inside of that constancy of change, there's like so much to love and appreciate about people (laughs) because they're just these miraculous creatures, you know, that always manage to find a way. Um, And and there's a lot of of real beauty and imagination and creativity that I'm seeing inside of that. If it's given sort of space to unfold and safety And, and most importantly, people won't do anything if they don't feel safe. So these containers have to be safe as well. 
I mean, it's it's great that you you touching this because the idea of quantum, uh, because it also resonates a lot with an idea that seems very structural to your thinking. Uh, this idea of uh, essentially integrating the yin and the yang, right? And uh, it's there's a lot of quantum energy in 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 this idea of uh, integrating. Uh, the two sides of, of something, right? So I think that that's great. Uh, Stina, you have some uh, some further question on the structural architectures, right? Yeah, um, I mean, I loved what you said that uh, trust makes things go fast. That's really something that I, I think that makes that whole discussion that we had around speed, it sort of puts the right light on that, I think. Um, so maybe my question is also in, a bit on what you see maybe around uh, with the zebras and, and more in general also in your thoughts on, on that. One is a bit about team size. If you have seen that, you know, for this to work, you have to keep small teams that are autonomous to execute uh, decisions and so on, to not make it sort of too big in that sense, to reach that level of trust. That's one thing. And the other thing, coming back a little bit to this technology, like, how much do you think that you could automate those kind of and have more like a trustless system? Do you think that uh, by making those proposals, uh, processes that you were talking about more automated, more lean, etc., would that be more like a competition with the trust building that you have seen? Or could it be a complement and, and you could really have both coexist, let's say, in the same way? Or is it removing too much of the human element? Mm. I think we're going to find out with Web3, right? <laughs> I think your your question will be answered with Web3 in terms of like, what are the limits of how far we can push automated distributed decision making of people that don't know each other and are making collective decisions. And it's a space that I am interested in and a lot of my friends are interested in it. And I think it's a very worthwhile experiment. Um so I don't know that I'm able to answer the question, but I'm really interested to find out. And I, you know, a, somebody like Austin Roby might be a great guest to have on your podcast, um, who's working in the Web space, three space and has a background in cooperatives and can speak more about it. I think at this point in my life, I feel this very strongly. Maybe my birthday's coming up, and I, I feel like I'm getting to this age where I have to make decisions. It, it feels somewhat like people are having to, there's a fork in the road and people are having to choose a path and apply their gifts and talents to this notion of web three and, you know, distributed digital infrastructure and decentralization. And I think inherent in that also is probably a conversation about the metaverse versus like the real world and our own lives and homes and communities and streets and buildings. And, you know, I live in Columbia, South Carolina, which I walk through the main downtown area every day to work and it's just boarded up shops and that it really, it breaks my heart. And like, that's where I want to put my energy. I want to figure out how people can be in rooms, sharing meals, being in community. And I'm just personally biased towards spending the rest of my time here on earth, cultivating that sense of fellowship in ways where we can hold one another's babies. And the acceleration of um, decentralization to me is not where my heart is, but I think we're about to undergo a lot of really inspired experiments and a lot of potentially incomprehensibly destructive experiments as well. Beautiful. And if I can remind about the, the team size question, if it's just, if you have a small reflection on, no. I don't know if the team size matters. I think we're learning a lot about um, 
Just briefly speaking, essentially, Zebras Unite is organized in a sociocratic way. So we have what's called circles. And those circles, we have a membership circle, a finance circle, or an operation circle, um, a, a circle that drives a lot of the revenue. Because we're a hybrid, we have a C3 circle. Each of those circles has a lead. Those leads can have co-leads. They have other members. And then when we sit together, we sit in what's called the general circle to make decisions that impact the whole organization. And we are applying that same governance structure to member-driven circles. So members have to do the same thing. There's one on the future of work, on leadership, on infrastructure, on patronage. And they have to uh, adhere to the same processes of having a lead, having a reporting structure, having a charter, organizing themselves in certain channels. And I have a lot of faith in this, like the sociocratic method of governance to me does not imply that you have to have small teams. It does mean you have to train circle leads and make sure they're really folded in tightly to the culture and to have tight communication between circle leads. But I don't think, I'm not convinced that smallness is a requisite for the types of culture we're talking about. I think that's where you really need kind of a competency of leadership to say, what are the skills and supports that these circle needs lead in order to feel as much sovereignty as possible over their circles? And what are the communication structures and norms and, and the culture building that enable us to come together in the general circle and make conscious and productive decisions? But I'm really excited about the way that sociocracy especially is able to kind of scale with organizations and not and, and things don't seem to fall apart as the organization grows. Thank you so much. I mean, I, it, it was great, I think, to explore this. Uh, I think we got some really good insights in, in terms of um, how uh, we could uh, kind of put together architecture, structure, uh, responsabilize teams uh, and grow differently than, than we used to uh, with this kind of venture-baked uh, businesses. And and so I think for me, it was a very insightful conversation. As we move in the last few minutes, I would like to ask you maybe, Mara, to uh, just share with us a couple of examples of, or maybe even more if you want, of zebras that uh, uh, maybe have an interesting new type or new approach to a business model or something that you believe it's interesting to mention to kind of uh, illustrate you know, a bit uh, how zebras are different even on the outside, not just on the inside. Yeah, well, I would encourage everyone to visit us, our Medium channel. We have a series called Zebras in the Wild that explores um, our chapter leads, our members, and you just get to learn more about each one of their companies. So we profile Zebras in the Wild. Um, I mean, there's so many examples of companies that are doing things in different ways. It's it's honestly hard to keep track. Um, I always like to give a shout out to some of our founding members, Smith and Connors is an example of a branding and strategy agency in Portland, Oregon that helped us with our um, with our branding and marketing. And they just they approach storytelling and partnership with their companies in a completely different way. That's so relationship based. Um, it's so deep, and they tend to work a lot with social impact companies, with foundations, and really, you know, telling the story is so important for these companies. So um, that's an example that I like to shout out, um, you know, other founding companies like my own, like Harkin. Um, we work with journalism, with colleges and universities. We have technology and services company. And, you know, in that instance, like we have a distributed team that's working really closely with partners that are core to democracy. And so that means that we have to raise different types of financing. It means that we have to um, pursue different structures of partnership. We have to have a hybrid that's both software and services. 
You have companies like Organically Grown Company that recently transformed into a steward-owned company as an example of you know, what it looks like to have a 30-year-old produce company in Portland, Oregon. And then there are so many companies around the world as well, folks working on childcare and different ways of imagining childcare networks. So yeah, there are so many. I encourage everyone to go hop over to Medium and read about zebras in the wild because everyone, I would say, what's so extraordinary about their companies is like they're both building their companies and also working really deeply at systems levels. And so I think another feature of Zebra founders is that they recognize they're part of larger systems. And so the concurrent work of building a company and working on systemic challenges is so inspiring to me because each one informs the other. That's great. I mean, again, another another really um, uh, echoing idea from from Taoism, right? Yeah, because systems thinking, uh, uh, realizing you're always part of a system. That's another very resonant idea from this Asian kind of uh, thinking about stuff. So, so it's really it's really great to hear. Thank you so much. It was uh, an amazing chat. Uh, I'm sure that uh, we uh, gave uh, some very tangible reflection points to, to the founders that uh, from our community. Uh, so we'll be sure to include uh, in the notes uh, all the links to the things and the readings and, uh, and the, the medium you mentioned so that they can spot zebras in the wild because there is where you should spot them, right? You, you should really look at these companies, how they're doing it, as to get inspiration. Maybe, uh, Mara, if you want to just say a couple of words on where they can find your work or maybe some initiatives that you, you care about in these very days and you want to uh, kind of promote to our listeners. Yeah. So in terms of where to find us online, uh, go to zebrasunite.coop. There you'll be able to join and own the movement. So a lot of people ask, how can I get involved? One of the easiest ways is actually to just own it and become a member owner of it so that you can help build it together, which is what we're very much doing in this startup phase. If you just want to dip your toe and learn more about the community, uh, when you go to zebrasunite.coop, you'll see that there's a place to join our online community, which has over 10,000 members from around the world. So that's a great place if you want to start a conversation, share more about your business, connect with others. We have a lot of public programs. So if you also on our website, you'll be able to find a link to our Crowdcast channel. We have a number of programs on ethical marketing and impact businesses this month just coming up. And we have a lot of great programs slated for February. Subscribe to our newsletter, which you can also do on our website. And then every Wednesday I host, or almost every Wednesday, I host a managing director meet and greet. So if you subscribe to our net, our newsletter, you'll get a link to that. A lot of people reach out after episodes like this, wanting to connect and learn more and get involved. And I love those conversations. They're free form conversations that allow us to get to know each other personally. Um, so I really love meeting people in that format as well. So please come on into one of those and let's get to know each other. And then of course, follow us on Twitter. And I think that's about all the places. We have a lot of resources available to you to learn more. And if you just want a first place to start to understand what this is all about, I'd recommend our manifesto, Zebras Fix What Unicorns Break, which gives you a really succinct overview. We publish a manifesto every February 14th. Um, so on Valentine's Day, look out for our next manifesto this year, which we're really excited to share. Thank you so much. Uh, Sina, do you have anything to add? Nothing to add. Uh, thank you so much for the conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mara. And to our listeners, let's catch up soon. Thanks a lot. Take good care. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Bandless Conversations podcast. We truly hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, 
please share this episode on social media, review our show on any major distribution platform, and don't forget to subscribe for new episode releases. Stay tuned on boundaries.io for our latest news and updates. There, you can also find our free design tools, opportunities to learn how to use them, and connect directly with us to use our help in designing your platform strategies and organizational transformations for the age of ecosystems. We also want to thank Walter Mobilia at Leo Sound for the ad hoc music.